doesn't it seem like the whole world has gone crazy? Are you feeling discouraged or maybe even a little depressed by all the strife and discord that surrounds us? So where is God in this mess? Is he interested in fixing our problems? Is he actively working to solve our broken world? Does he move passively? Or do you think he's washed his hands of the whole thing? If he's interested in repairing our sorry existence, then why doesn't he? Today, we'll talk about the effect of God's presence or absence on an apparently devolving human condition on this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, what would you say to a friend who has concluded that God is not involved in the day-to-day goings-on in our world? I'd want to find out why they think that at first. I'd want to find out, you know, somebody said, I don't think God's really that engaged. I'd want to find out where are they coming from. Do they think that because of the problem of evil, because well, it's clear that things are so bad in the world that obviously if there was a God, he'd be helping out and he's not. Is it because um, is it because uh, he's looking for an excuse to do what he wants? You know, hey, I can do what I want. You know, God does not – he's up there. He's not that interested in me. You know, he might look down every once in a while and see how I'm doing, but he's not really that involved in my life. Is it, um, is it a more philosophical problem? Is it a, because of materialism that this is – currently in our culture, and it has been since the Enlightenment, typically people who do believe in a God in the West are what we call deist. That that is, they believe in a God. Maybe they think that God is somehow responsible for everything being here, or maybe that God created everything, but that God isn't really involved anymore in the day-to-day life of the world. And so that, that that kind of springs from this the, the view of the universe as being primarily material. Well, you know, the, there's really not a need for a god. Maybe if you want an explanation for how things got here, but really after that, the universe kind of runs on its own. You know, you get the seasons and you got space and time and molecules bouncing off each other. So I'd actually want to find out where he was coming from first before I had a real interesting conversation. But I think that probably at the end of the day, I'd end up saying, if God is if God is a God, if there is a God, the God would be involved in everything because that's what God is. And I'm not even arguing right now that it's the God of the Bible or a good God even or a bad God or whatever. But just if God is God, that means that person's in charge. If somebody's not in charge, they're not God. Whatever is in charge would be God. So if you are going to believe in a God, I think you probably ought to just jump in feet first. So you've been a pastor for a pretty long time. You've had lots of uh, parishioners over those years. I know you can't tell me statistically, you can't answer this with a hard number, but what's your gut feeling? Of those people that you have pastored, how many of them have, have been or are deists? Uh, I actually, I have a memory of talking about this once before with you. It's an interesting question. Uh, it's hard to say, but I, well, so I'll say this. A hundred percent of us tend that way. A hundred percent of us in the West, those people who claim to believe in God, tend to be deist. It tends to be the default mode just because that's what we grew up with. 
You, you know, uh, if an atheist says to me, I don't believe in God, and a theist says to me, well, I do believe in God, I can pretty much assume that they both mean this man who lives up in the sky, who, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's kind of set things in order and the world kind of works. And every once in a while, like, he looks down and sees something he doesn't like and he sends some lightning bolts to blow something up. Or he sees something he does like and he sends some nice weather or a pay raise. But both the atheists, the, the God that the atheist doesn't believe in and the God that the theist does believe in tend to, in our culture, be deists. And one of the challenges of uh, being a Christian is to speak the reality of the Christian God against that God, the spy-in-the-sky version of God. So I think we can all agree that uh, our world is just full of trouble, which is actually something the Bible predicts. Is that God's fault or is that our fault? It's our fault. The Bible is very clear that well, it's two, it's two groups are going to agree about this. First of all, the Bible is very clear that humans have screwed everything up. Almost everybody I know, you know, religious people, non-religious people, all agree that humans have done a really excellent job of screwing everything up. So both sides agree that it's really essentially a human problem. I know philosophically, and we're probably going to go there, a lot of people will say, well, I can't believe in a world uh, in a world where so much is wrong, I can't believe in a God. That's actually less of a that's actually less a look of rea- an honest look at reality and more a philosophical position that wants to use reality to not believe in a God that they didn't previously want to believe in. So are you differentiating philosophical from theological? Is that the contrast you're trying to make? No, I'm differentiating philosophical from uh, just practical day-to-day experience. In practical practical day-to-day experience, somebody cuts me off in traffic and I don't say, oh, where is God in all of this? I can't believe in a God. You know, even if I, uh, if something really bad happens, you know, like if a, if I lost my job, most people, you know, you go to work and there's a boss who you know is crooked and you end up losing your job because you aren't going to play ball with that boss. Most people don't say, oh, man, I can't believe in God because of that. Most people would say, man, this is a crooked world that we live in. Or they might say, hey, God, what did I do to deserve this, this kind of adversity? Yeah, religious people will frequently turn to God. That's true. But most of us... uh you know, most of us blame the messed up political system in our country on the politicians. Most of us don't say everything's lousy in our country right now. God must not exist. Most of us are just like, well, people who have power and people who have money do bad things, and that's why they do those things, and it's their fault, and let's figure out a way to fix it. So I'm thinking that somebody might say, uh, yeah, um, boy, the politicians have really screwed things up in our country or screwed things up in this world. And... I'm just disgusted with the politicians. And I might not say it, but I might think it, and I'm really disgusted with God because he never does anything to deal with these politicians. He just seems to be somewhere off in the distance, probably shaking his head thinking, oh, these politicians, they're just terrible. But he doesn't do anything about it. And therefore, while I would never say this to you or out loud to anybody— I have a slightly, if maybe not a measurable, diminished view of God because of it. Yeah. Well, you should. You should. I mean, if if, if that's your view of God, that, uh, you, you know, he's 
slightly disinterested and he's not doing anything about the problems. I, I you know, I, I, I don't like that God either. I choose along with you to not believe in that God as well. The God of the Christian Bible, though, is very different. He's very engaged. He's very active. He is. Uh, he claims to be the Lord of the universe. I'm not seeing it. Well, so so this there's there's two things that might be going on here. One is a he might not be doing it because you can't see it. In which case, let's not believe in him. B, he might be doing it, but you can't see it because you're not looking in the right place or because there's something wrong with your eyes. And that's the option that the that the Christian Bible opts for. You know, we have a we have a problem as humans is that. We think that we know the solution to problems, right? We think that you know, so, so the political system is bad. And so we think, you know what? God's not doing anything. You know what? The, the solution should be, I should get the power. And then as soon as I get the power, I'm going to end up being, that's what power does. I'm going to end up being crooked. So the problem is my eyesight. I, I can't see God working because I'm looking in the wrong place. God doesn't usually work through great amounts of money. Or power, and I'm not saying that like you know business people or rich people or politicians can't be good citizens and even good Christians. I'm not saying that at all, but that's not typically the way that God works. God typically works in slightly sneakier ways, which are less noticeable to those of us who are trained to always look at the money or the power to find out you know how how things get done. And why things aren't getting done, because the wrong people have the money, the wrong people have the power. God works in slightly sneakier, but more powerful and more pervasive ways. Did you just say that God is a sneaky God? And not, not sneaky intentionally, but sneaky in the sense that we don't know where to look for him, and so he always surprises us. Let's talk about the atheist here for a second. You, you mentioned that before. How likely do you think it is that the person who identifies as an atheist, and I think that's a journey. When you finally say to your friends or your family, yes, I'm an, I'm an atheist, how likely do you think that outcome is because that person has surveyed the situation of the world and found it to be wanting, found it to be desperate, found it to be violent, and because of that says, there is no God, and therefore I'm an atheist? Uh can I throw this back at you? Like, what were the, what would the other options be? I'm interested in that. Like, do you other than atheism? No, other than like, I'm an atheist because I don't believe that an evil world. If if there was a god who would exist, he would clearly make himself real. Well, off the top of my head, I think that atheism sometimes flows not from seeing adversity, but in pursuit of nobility. And so, I don't know if this is a philosophy or not, but as one does self-evaluation and one decides where they want to be and what they want to look like in the future, they take a certain amount of nobility yeah. from, and even pride, and yes, I, I have advanced so far that I can now declare that I'm an atheist. Right, yeah. I, yeah, I, I totally think that's true. I, also, the pursuit of pleasure is one. There's a famous Aldous Huxley quote from the 1920s where he basically said, something on the lines of, and this is a super rough paraphrase, I'm going to mess this up, but uh, my friends and I at college, we wanted to have sex, and God was in the way, so we dispensed with him. And it was a very, very honest quote. I, I might have mentioned that quote in here before, but I, actually, I think that um, I think that typically what I found is that the problem of evil is secondary. Um, 
I don't think we, we talked last time in, in the in the last episode about um, what faith is, and I argued along with uh, the Bible and Saint Augustine that believing is seeing, not the other way around. I don't think that people. I think that Christians see evidences for God because they want to believe in God. That's a rough way of saying it. As a believer, I would say because I know God. I see evidences for God because I know my mom loves me whenever she does nice things. I take those as evidence that she loves me, not the other way around. I'm not asking my mom for evidences to prove that she loves me. Atheism is the same way. Atheists are typically atheists for the same reason that theists are typically theists, because they want to be. There's some sort of reason that they want to be. Nobility is a reason. Pleasure is a reason. And then you look for reasons. Then you, and I'm not saying like they're manufacturing reasons, but you see the things in the world and they reinforce your desires. You see the evil in the world and you say, ah, that means that there's no God. So I suspect as a pastor that you have had more conversations with people than I have about their frustration, about their uh, problems with their own faith, thinking those kinds of things through. Yeah. Has anyone ever said to you something like, if your God can sit by while the whole world experiences war and famine and disease, then I don't want anything to do with your God. Have you heard that? Yeah, but yeah, for sure. But my comeback would be like, I get it. Like if my God is sitting by not doing anything, then I agree with you. I don't like him either. My God is doing something though. My God is actively engaged in fixing these problems. And um, you just, we're just looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the wrong place. We're looking up at the pie and you know the, the the spy in the sky and saying, "What are you? You know, why aren't you doing anything?" It's the old joke about the. Um, it's like the old joke about the, the, the 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 guy who's sitting on top of the house, the, the, the roof of his house in the flood. You've heard this before. And somebody uh, rows by in a boat and says, "Hey, I'm here to rescue you." And the guy says, no, I'm praying. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And uh, so the guy uh, paddles away, and the uh, original man on the roof uh, ends up drowning to death and goes to heaven and says to God, why didn't you rescue me? And he says, well, I sent a guy in a boat. It's that way. We're looking for uh, – we're looking for – we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the wrong place. Okay, so perhaps the opposite is true. You seem to be making a, a strong case here that God is not – dispassionate. He's not inactive. He's not distant. He, the opposite is true. He is He is really involved. Yeah, yeah. So if he is involved, and as I think I heard you describe, he's involved in a way that we just don't see it, are we supposed to just go through life never seeing it and... Then we get to heaven, and we, you know, our guardian angel says, "Hey, remember when that good thing happened? Or you got saved from that? That was me. You, you and you weren't supposed to know it, but that's how we do things up here. Or is there a way to say, well, if I'm looking in the wrong place, tell me where the right place is, and I'll start looking there.' Yeah, yeah, that's that's the that's the crux of it, right? Actually, that's a unintentional pun. The crux. Um, so the, the place to look for is, and, and so many people don't get it, going back 2,000 years, is that God is not some you know, powerful man with a beard sitting behind the curtain, pulling the ropes that make everything go. 
God, the Bible insists, uh, this is unlike any other God in the universe. God is not the God of, the, of deism. God is a human being. God is actually a construction worker. Uh, God made himself human to come down here to experience all the evil that anybody's ever experienced. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and to be lynched and uh, to, to stand in front of a um, kangaroo court for a mock trial uh, with false evidence drummed up and, and nobody to defend him. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to sleep outside. He knows what it's like to lose friends. All these things, he knows what it's like. And he didn't just do it out of sympathy. He didn't ju just do it to experience it. He did it because he wanted to fix it. And the Bible insists that when he took all of these bad things that happened to him, all the evil things that happened to him, and was crucified, and that's the crux of it, he's crucified on a cross, and he rises from the dead, that he's taken all of these evil things in the world, and he's made them impotent. And it doesn't mean that there aren't evil things that are happening, but it does mean that their power is stripped from them. I mean the power to be God themselves. Our bad circumstances, the cancer that we might have, or the loss of the loved one, or the loss of a job, or even just stubbing your toe when you walked around the breakfast table this morning, all of these bad circumstances have been swallowed up by Jesus. He has experienced them. He knows exactly what they're like. And he's risen from the dead to take away all of their power. They no longer have the power to control us. And he's determined to slowly but surely work this power out through his creation until they go away. And one day he's going to appear, the, the, the man, Christ Jesus, is going to appear, and he's going to put finally all things to right and uh, do away with them. Meanwhile, he is active right now, warring against those things. Well, let's talk about that, yeah. that kind of activity. What if I were to say, yeah, I believe God is active, but here's how he's doing it. He's equipping his church to overcome this broken world. It's up to us to tidy it up. And then let me add the second thought. When we get that done, as he drums his fingers on the, uh, arm ch uh, the armchair, uh, looking down, waiting for us to get our act together and get it done, when we get it all tidied up, then Jesus will come back. Well, so, yeah, so part of that is true, right, is that uh, Jesus has equipped the Bible insists that Jesus has equipped his church to do this. Uh, anybody who knows anything about church, whether you're a Christian or not, knows that the church is a part of the problem. The church is not that that great at doing uh, fighting back against evil. In fact, the church is, just like anybody else in our culture, quick to grasp at money and power as the solutions to their problems and to the problems of their communities. But... Um, Jesus, when I say Jesus is active, I mean he is active. And I know it's broken and it's messed up and the church is screwed up. But Jesus insists that the church is his body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this. Ephesians 4 talks about this. The Christian church is the body of Christ. And Christ is active, still active in fixing these things. So, so back when Jesus was walking the earth, he, uh, he healed sick people. And he fed hungry people, and he took the marginalized people, the, the children and the women and the crippled people and the poor people, 
and he inserted them. He brought them back and re-enfranchised them. He brought them back and made them members, full members of community. That's still what he's doing now, and he's doing it weirdly through his church. And, and I know weirdly, I say weirdly because the church is part of the again part of the problem. But if you step, if you look at any individual church, it'll be hard. Lewis C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Screw Tape Letters. It'll be hard not to notice how lame everybody in that church is. Best case scenario, worst case scenario, how hypocritical they are. And yet God still is working through lame people. And one of the reasons is that he wants the glory. He wants it to be known that Jesus is the one who is fixing things. Now, he invites his church to be a part of it, and churches need to be a part of it. We need to be more active in saying, Jesus, fix the problems of our town and let us be a part of it. Jesus, do in our town what you did here when you were walking around in uh, the ancient Near East. Help us to heal people. Help us to feed people. Help us to preach that you are in charge and call people to join us as people who worship the real God who's in charge, not money, not power, but you. And he's doing it. And again, I know that the church is a part of the problem. Um, Lewis says, not Lewis, but uh, Martin Luther says, capturing this reality that the church is both a part of the problem and God's chosen vehicle to fix the problem. Luther says a little bit crassly at one point, he says, uh, yes, the church is a whore, but she's Christ's bride and she's your mother and you're not free to abandon her. And this really, really captures a lot of what the New Testament, the Christian New Testament has to say about what the church is. It's broken and it's screwed up. And it's so oftentimes helpless, almost willfully helpless, and it's pursued after things that don't really work, like power and money and prestige and nobility and relevance. And yet God has chosen to use the church to fix problems in the world. And honestly, if you just take a step back, I, I've mentioned this book before, Tom Holland's book. He's a, Tom Holland is not a Christian believer. He's a historian. He's written a book called Dominion where he looks at the things that go on in our world that we all agree are good things, hospitals, schools, visions of the end of racism, visions of equal rights for women. This guy's not a Christian believer. And he goes through these things and points out that these things all exist because of Christians, that all of these things that have happened exist because the Christian church has introduced the notion that because all people are created equal, different races are all equal before before God. That did not exist before Christianity. And so to actually step back and say, okay, we as the Christian church are called to be agents and voices for this mission of Jesus and to be a part of this. So in Matthew 24, the disciples in a private session with Jesus during Passion Week, I think, they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answers that question with a chilling description of severe adversity, wars and yeah. pestilence. And so apparently for those of us who are waiting for God to somehow tidy it all up here and get it in order so that uh, the great day of the Lord can take place, it gets worse. And there, are, there's plenty in the scripture to suggest that it's going to be really bad when Jesus does finally return. So am I supposed to somehow be encouraged by all this? Yeah, it's a huge question. And actually, to, to, to really do it justice, we'd have to go back and look at Matthew 24, verse by verse, and talk about it. But um, 
Let, let me come at this a couple different ways. One is in Matthew 24, the disciples, um, in, in the verses right before you read, the disciples are in Jerusalem with Jesus, and Matthew says they're pointing out to him all the beautiful buildings in the temple complex. And Jesus says to them, not one of these stones is going to be standing on each other pretty soon. And the disciples say, when will this happen? And what will be the and then the verse that you read, the coming of the Son of Man? When will we know how these things are happening? So, so the disciples, to us, it looks like they're asking three questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? When are you going to return? And what will be the, how will we know when the age is ending? But... For the disciples, it's just one question in their mind. That's one single event, the destruction of the temple, the vindication of Jesus, the Son of Man, and the end of the age. And so when Jesus answers that question, um, this is kind of a hot take, all right? So this is a little bit controversial in some circles. I mean, some people are going to be listening to this and think, I've never heard of this before, and honestly, I could live the rest of my life in peace without, without having to listen to what you're about to say next. And I get it. Matthew 24, I think, by and large, the language about the destruction and the wars and the earthquakes and flee Jerusalem. Don't stay in the city of Jerusalem. It'd be better, like, go leave, like, go out to the desert. That's largely talking about the events that the disciples are really interested in, which is when is the temple going to be destroyed? There's going to be rumors of false messiahs. There's going to be rumors of uh, approaching armies. And Jesus says when that day happens, which, by the way, um, it happens in AD 70. Um, just, uh, you know, one of the things Jesus says in here is this generation will not pass away before this happens, which it's hard to explain that if you think that that text is about the end of the world, the end of the age, or the apocalypse or whatever. But actually, it's about AD, the events of AD 70 when the temple's destroyed by Roman armies who are there to crush a revolt. Not one stone ends up being left uh, standing in that event. And so one of the things we have to do is to interpret uh, the bad things that are happening there are things that, have, that happened in the past. Now, I'm not going to say it's just about the past. I'm going to say it's about, this, is about ex- this is about our existence all the time. When do we not, as human beings, specifically as Christians right now, for those of you who are believers, when do we not live in a time when there aren't, I'm not sure, I think I probably used a double negative there, but you know what I'm doing, where there aren't earthquakes or rumors of wars or violence. That's, that's the world that we live in. Uh, things are bad. They're not necessarily getting worse. They've always been. Maybe they're getting worse in my town, but there's always been genocide. There's always been disease. There's always been pandemics. This is the way the broken world has always been. It's not necessarily getting worse and worse. In fact, let me argue this, and I'm just going to do this real briefly. And again, I might have mentioned this before in a previous episode. But this would take a thorough biblical study, which is really not the point of this podcast, although maybe it would be helpful sometime. The Bible tells a story of more and more people coming to submit to the authority of King Jesus all the time. Just as a, a quick example, Isaiah 2 pictures in the last days, it says, that people from all nations all over the world are going to stream into the city of Jerusalem to sit in the sanctuary of God, and to learn from him there. Well, we're seeing this happen. All over the world, people are coming to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Christianity is an incredibly quickly growing religion. The fastest growing religion in the world is Christianity. Maybe not here in my town, 
There's a, there's a church on just about every corner in my town, and the market's pretty much saturated. Thankfully, we should be thankful for that. Not completely. There's still lots of work to do, especially in the churches themselves. Like I said, there needs to be a revival of uh, real genuine Christianity in my church. But across the world, places where Jesus wasn't heard of, even decades ago, it is now the dominant religion in the global South, Africa, South America, many, many parts of Asia and Southeast Asia. This is what Jesus is doing. He's slowly but surely conquering the world for justice and righteousness, and he is going to make all things new. Let's talk about that glass-half-full person, the optimist, the encourager, who does Christian works, uh, is faithful to live out his or her faith by doing good works in the name of Jesus, and Part of that dynamic, although perhaps until this conversation today, maybe they haven't really thought it out all the way to the end. Part of that dynamic is they're trying to make a better world. I'm right. just trying to make a better world. Not just a better world in my square yard here, yeah. but collectively, I and others who are faithful, we are going to improve the world. Yeah. And pretty much all they've heard here today is, ain't going to happen. It's going to get worse until the end, and that encourager is now a little discouraged. Uh, what have you got for that person? Well, that, I, I, maybe I misspoke then, because that, that, that's what I'm not. I'm saying that the opposite is true. That the world is be going to is going to become a better and better place all the time. That as Jesus rules and reigns more and more again. When does that start? Started when Jesus rose from the dead. So okay. I understand what you're saying here, but I'm just not seeing it, uh, particularly now. It appears like the whole world – I mean, when we entered the nuclear age and we got armed to the teeth, we entered a, a period as a world community of terror that we had never known before. And you're saying it's getting better all the time? Is that what you said? Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be a steady 45-degree uphill climb. There will be fits and starts, but Jesus is slowly, sure, but surely, he is going to rule and reign until righteousness covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And he's slowly ruling and reigning more and more all the time. So, so uh, one, of the, 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 one of the horrors of the 20th century, right, is the, the, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki your generation, my generation as well, grew up with this fear that that was our ultimate destiny, is that the world was going to end in a huge nuclear conflagration. That has not happened. That has not happened. And there have been... It's hard to see. In the moment, it's hard to see because it's undeniable that there are bad things. It's undeniable that bad people have political power and economic power. And yet, if you step back and you look big picture, Jesus, again, it's slowly but surely, is transforming the world in his image. And more and more people are Christians now than ever were before. Look, um, 150 years ago, there are people in our country, and this is like my grandfather knew people who lived in this world. This is within recent memory. There are people in my country who owned other people and horribly mistreated them, sometimes even murdering them, simply because of the color of their skin. 
And I am not saying that racism is fixed or cured. It obviously is not. It's a sin problem, and it's got to be addressed with the gospel. And until our culture wakes up and realizes it has to be addressed with the gospel, it's not going to get fixed. But it is way better than it was 150 years ago. This is undeniable. The way that women are treated in my culture, in a Christian culture, way better than it was in non-Christian cultures. I, I, you know, I would just at random, you know, I, I, I come from Germanic stock. The way that women were treated in my world 1,500 years ago in the barbaric Germanic tribes, way different now than they're treated in Christianity. Children are treated way different. This sort of thing is growing, and and what I'm saying is we have to look for it. And if if we look at the politicians and the money... Or if we look at any other sort of broad, the, the media or whatever else you want to uh, pick on, you can be like, well, see, there's big problems. Of course there's big problems. But if you look at the suffering God, you know, Jesus is a construction worker who got assassinated, and that's how he solves the problem. And you can look at that and be like, well, that doesn't solve anything. This innocent dude got knocked off. How does that fix anything? It's so unnoticeable. It's, it's almost scandalous. And yet... He's using that to fix everything. And to the people who need encouragement, I would say the small things that you're doing in your calling, the kind word that you say to a neighbor, you go to work, you clock in, you work hard, you go home. Jesus is using all these things to transform the world into his image. He's doing it. And we can't see it because we're looking in the wrong place, but he's definitely doing it. Here's my last question. A listener listening to our program today, Christian, not a deist, Christian, um, pretty well educated on what the scriptures have to say about many of these things that we've been talking about, but still feels on many days like God is distant or even absent, may cry out in prayer, God, where are you? Is there a, a path that you can identify for that person when they're in that moment and they're not seeing the optimistic things that you just described, the growing things that you just described, is there a prayer remedy for that moment for that person? Well, so again, to, to go back to the cross and refocus on what Jesus did on the cross, I mean, that's the key. Sometimes people, Christians, I should say, sometimes Christian imagine, Christians imagine that Jesus died on the cross, okay, that was powerful, but then my life should be great now. Like, our political and economic and social system should be beautiful now because Jesus died on the cross. But the whole what, the, the point of Jesus dying on the cross is to rescue the world through the suffering of God and to imprint that calling on his church. Paul's very insistent on this, St. Paul's very insistent on this in 2 Corinthians, that God has called his church to suffer the sufferings of Jesus, so that the power of the resurrection of Jesus can also be worked out in our culture. And when things go bad and we think, God, where are you at? One of the answers is, is like, he's crucified. And so my sufferings are a sign that he's at work, that he, this is how he works. He doesn't work in like, he, you know, it's not the case that it's, not normally the case that your favorite movie star is all of a sudden going to convert to Christianity and abandon their life of manipulating women and living for greed and money and say, everybody who likes my movies, you should believe in Jesus and become a better human. That's not the way it usually works. It usually works the suffering of Christians. That's how God works his kingdom out. 
and because we're connected to the sufferings of Jesus. So to anybody who's discouraged and says, I don't feel like God is here because things are going wrong, I would say God is always where things are going wrong because he's the God who lives in things going wrong. He's the God who is the crucified God. Look for him there. So I guess what I take from this conversation is that our natural eyes are pretty good at seeing everything that's going wrong. Yes. But whether it's he who has ears to hear or he who has eyes to see through the lens of faith, we could probably see a lot of God's activity if we would just look through that lens yeah. and focus on the cross. Yes, absolutely. Is That's my takeaway. Oh, yeah. You're good with that? Yep. We say thank you for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. When you select an episode, you'll have an opportunity to click the like button or to click the share button on Facebook or Twitter. There's also a place where you can leave a comment. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thanks for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God.